So Heavenly Father, I want to ask especially, Lord, that as we look at this message called the righteousness trap, that you would please speak to us. Give us, Lord, your wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you today about three time prophecies. Those time prophecies are the 70 weeks, the 1260 years, and the 2300 day prophecy. We're going to start with the 70 weeks. And again, we're talking about the righteousness trap. The 70 week prophecy. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says here now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I want to let you know that Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Why do I say that? The wise men were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And these Gentiles saw the star that alerted them of the arrival of the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me show you. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. The Bible tells us here in Isaiah 42, verse 6, that Jesus was to be a light to the Gentiles. We see that being fulfilled in the very fact that it was Gentiles, wise men, that saw the light in the sky, which directed them to the birth of Jesus, to the place where Jesus was born. Okay, let's keep moving. Isaiah 60 points to the same thing. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine. For thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. The Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen on thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy son shall come from far and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear 
and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee and the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Isaiah 60 is pointing out something very, very interesting. It was basically saying that Israel was to be a light that the Gentiles would come to. And the question is, how was Israel to be the light that the Gentiles would come to? Well, it is obviously because Jesus was going to come to Israel. And had Israel accepted the light of Christ, the Gentiles would have come to Israel. All right. So you following me so far? I think my throat has just finished doing whatever it was doing. The prophecy that Jesus would come into this world as a light also pertained to Israel being a light to the Gentiles, not of themselves, but because of their acceptance of Christ. And it was the wise men, listen carefully, the wise men that saw the light. So Gentiles came looking for Jesus. This prophecy of the coming of the light is basically what the 70-week prophecy was about. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 onward, it speaks of this time prophecy, the 70 weeks that were allotted to the children of Israel before the coming of Christ. And I want you to understand something. You see, Israel received that prophecy as they were in Babylonian captivity. The reason they were in Babylonian captivity is because they had been practicing idolatry and God allowed them to go into Babylonian captivity. And there in Babylon, God gives them this prophecy. I'm coming. I'm coming soon. I'm coming at the end of this 70-week prophecy and you have 70 weeks to get your act together to accept the light of the Messiah so that the Gentiles can come to you. The whole purpose of the 70-week prophecy was to prepare the Jews to be the light of the world. And we already see strike one in the fact that it was Gentiles, right, wise men that saw this star, that understood the, coming, the time of the coming of Christ, but the Jews had no clue. I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. While all Jerusalem was unprepared, was off guard, they were not ready for the coming of Christ. I mean, you would think the text would say all Jerusalem was happy. All Jerusalem was excited. But no, they were not. They were unprepared. Notice the following statement, Desire of Ages, page 61. She says, the priests are rehearsing traditions. They extol their religion and their own piety while they denounce the Greeks and Romans as heathen and sinners above others. The wise men are not idolaters, and in the sight of God, they stand far higher than do these, 
his professed worshipers, yet they are looked upon by the Jews as heathen. Even among the appointed guardians of the holy oracles, their questionings touch no chord of sympathy. So I want you to get what's going on here. These heathen come to the Jews inquiring about their own prophecy. But because it's coming from heathen, because it's coming from these Gentiles, the religious leaders don't even pay it any attention. They're like, God's not going to pass us by to speak to you. If the Messiah were to come, he would have let us know. She goes on to say, now pride and envy close the door against the light. If the reports brought by the shepherds and the wise men were credited, they would be placed, they would place the priests and rabbis in a most envy, unenviable position, disproving their claim to be the exponents, the exponents of the truth of God. These learned teachers would not stoop to be instructed by those whom they termed heathen. It could not be, they said, that God had passed them by to communicate with ignorant shepherds or uncircumcised Gentiles. They determined to show their contempt for the reports that were exciting King Herod and all Jerusalem. They would not even go to Bethlehem to see whether these things were so. And they led the people to regard the interest in Jesus as a fanatical excitement. Here began the rejection of Christ by the priests and rabbis. From this point, their pride and stubbornness grew into a settled hatred of the Savior. While God was opening the door to the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders were closing the door to themselves. So I want you to catch what's happening here. The Jews are supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. But their pride and their prejudice and their disdain leads them to miss the beginning of the fulfilling of the 70-week prophecy. The wise men come. They don't even regard the wise men. They're thinking God's not going to speak through these heathen and bypass us. Now, there's another thing going on. This is the time of the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter 2, it's the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron. This is the kingdom in which Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, why is it significant? Because in the time of the Roman Empire, by the way, the subtitle of this message, which I told you all yesterday might be coming up, is this. Why Jesus attempted no civil reform. Why Jesus attempted no civil reform. Let's get to it. In this time, the Roman Empire was a very crooked empire. There were crimes of all sorts going on. There was poverty. There were national abuses. There was homosexuality. There was a sex trade. There was prostitution. There were all kinds of things going on in the Roman Empire. There were worshiping of idols. And in fact, in Desire of Ages, page 104, it says this. When the ministry of John began, the nation was in a state of excitement and discontent verging on revolution. At the removal of Archelaus, Judea had been brought directly under the control of Rome. Tyranny and extortion of the Roman governors and their determined efforts to introduce the heathen symbols and customs kindled revolt, which had been quenched in the blood of thousands of the bravest of Israel. All this intensified 
the national hatred against Rome and increase the longing to be freed from her power. So I want you to notice Rome was intentionally trying to introduce heathen symbols and customs into Israel. They were not worshipers of God. This is a condition of the Roman Empire. We're told the government under which Jesus lived, that is the government of Rome, was corrupt and oppressive. And on every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Okay, yet the Savior attempted no civil reform. I'm going to pause right there for a second. And I just need you to give me a, a thumbs up. A heart if you get what this, what this is saying. Jesus attempted no civil reforms. I just want to make sure you're following me. So I just want to see your response. Jesus attempted no civil reforms. I'm waiting for you guys to respond. All right. Very good. I, I see you tracking. All right. So he attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses. None. None, 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 none. Nor condemned the national enemies. He didn't touch Rome. He was not concerned about Rome. I need you to catch this, guys. He did not rebuke Rome. He didn't address their oppression. He didn't oppress their abuses, the extortion, none of it. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power, those in power. He was our example and kept aloof from all earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the human heart. I need you to catch this. No rebuke of Rome. No rebuke of the Gentiles. No rebuke of the heathen in power. None. Why? The question is why? And the answer is here, Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Watch this, guys. Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go there. That's not my mission. <laughs> Don't go preach to the Gentiles. Don't go tell the Gentiles to keep my commandments and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't. No, no, no. I want you rather to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus's message was to Israel. It was not to Rome. It was not to the Romans. But wait, hold on. We just read that the whole purpose of the gospel was for the Gentiles to come to the light. Pastor, what are you saying? Beloved, Jesus' concern was with his church. Go tell my church to let their light shine, to accept the light so that the Gentiles can be saved.
<laughs> I need you to catch this. You see, the Jews hated the Romans. And when Jesus came, you can probably imagine the Jews were like hitting up Jesus' Facebook. Hey, do you know what the Romans believe? Did you know that the Romans worship multiple gods? Did you know that the Romans are slave sex trafficking? Did you know that? And yet Jesus never rebuked the Romans. Matt, I hope you are catching this. I hope you are praying for yourselves right now. Listen to this. The disciples on their first missionary tour were to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If they had now preached the gospel to the Gentiles or Samaritans, they would have lost their influence with the Jews. By exciting the prejudice of the Pharisees, they would have involved themselves in controversy, which would have discouraged them at the outset of their labors. Even the apostles were slow to understand that the gospel was to be carried to all nations. Until they themselves could grasp this truth, they were not prepared to labor for the Gentiles. If the Jews would receive the gospel, God purposed to make them his messengers to the Gentiles. Therefore, they were the first hear the message beloved in order for the gentiles to be saved in order for the heathen to be saved god had to make sure that the church y'all mm, in order for the gentiles to be saved the light had to be shining in the church so jesus's focus was on the church Christ attempted no national or civil reform. Why? Because the Romans were in charge. <laughs> and the Romans had no allegiance to Jesus. Why are they going to listen to him? Who are you? God? That's why Jesus attempted no civil reform. Because the Romans were in charge. The Gentiles were in charge. They didn't have the oracles of the word of God. They didn't have the truth of the Bible. They didn't have the truth of the Holy Spirit. And so how is Jesus going to speak to them? No, he comes to the ones who are supposed to have the truth. His claim was on his people. And now I want you to notice how Jesus treated his own people. I want you to notice how Jesus treated the leaders of his nation. He rebuked them continually. <laughs> Luke eleven thirty nine. Your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Luke eleven forty. You fools. Luke eleven forty two. You pass over judgment and the love of God. Eleven forty four. You hypocrites. Forty six. You laden men with burdens grievous to be borne, and you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Forty eight. Your fathers kill the prophets. Fifty two. Them that want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you hinder. Matthew twenty three verse four. You bind heavy burdens. Matthew twenty three verse seven. You take pride in calling yourselves teachers. Jesus rebuked those who should have known better, and not a word to the Romans. Israel, rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. Romans, not a word. 
Not a word, guys. Now, watch this. Some of you may have never read this before, but did you know that Christ was a Protestant? Yes, let's read it. Christ was a Protestant. He protested against the formal worship of the Jewish nation. Pause for a second. Hold on. We just read earlier that Christ attempted no civil reform. Why? Because the government was a civil one run by heathen, run by Gentiles. However, Christ did protest a nation. It wasn't the Roman nation. It wasn't the unbelieving nation. It was the Jewish nation. Those that claim to carry the truth of God. Christ was a Protestant. He protested against the formal worship of the Jewish nation who rejected the counsel of God against themselves. He told them that they taught for doctrines the commandments of men and that they were pretenders and hypocrites. Like whited sepulchers, they were beautiful without, but within, full of impurity and corruption. Jesus was trying to get them to see that the Romans weren't the problem. They were the problem. Y'all didn't hear that. You didn't catch that. The Romans were not the problem. You, my church, you are the problem. But Lord, those Romans are pagans. Those Romans, those old Marxist Romans, <laughs> Those old communist Romans, Jesus said, they are not the issue. Watch this. Come on, I love you. I love you. You know I do. I love you. Listen to what Ellen White says. By the Babylonian captivity, the Israelites were effectually cured of the worship of graven images. During the centuries that followed, they suffered from the oppression of heathen foes until the conviction became fixed that their prosperity depended upon their obedience to the law of God. But with too many of the people, obedience was not prompted by love. The motive was selfish. They rendered outward service to God as the means of attaining to national greatness. They did not become the light of the world, but shut themselves away from the world in order to escape temptation to idolatry. In the instruction given through Moses, God had placed restrictions upon the association with idolaters. But this teaching had been misinterpreted. It was intended to prevent them from conforming to the practices of the heathen, but it was used to build up a wall of separation between Israel and all other nations. The Jews looked upon Jerusalem as their heaven, and they were actually jealous lest the Lord should show mercy to the Gentiles. We hate the Gentiles. They are heathens. They are this. They are that. You fill in the blank. Have you seen the Gentiles' webpage? Go check out the webpage of the Gentiles. It'll tell you everything they believe. They believe in multiple gods. They don't honor the God of Israel. The Jews decided that righteousness was about separating from the very people that God wanted them to go be a light to.
So I call that the righteousness trap. Where Satan sets you up to think that by hating the enemy and by hating the Gentiles and by hating evil, you have somehow declared yourself to be righteous. Satan led them to isolate themselves from the world, not mingle with them as ones that desired their good. Even the Jews, even the disciples were infected with this. In Luke 9, 51, the Bible says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as, was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I need you to catch this. The disciples were like, what? The heathen are rejecting you? Let's call fire down on them. Let's expose them for the enemies that they are. They had a spirit of hate to the Gentiles and Jesus rebuked that spirit. Ellen White says this, the education of the disciples and their Jewish prejudices unfitted them for the work among the Samaritans or the heathen. How many of us are unfitted for the work among today's Gentiles because we hate them so much? Because we're so into exposing the wickedness of the Gentiles. They made this manifest on Christ's last journey to Jerusalem. On that journey, he sent messengers before his face and she quotes a text. And then she says, they did not open their doors to the heavenly guests and did not urge him to abide with them. Although they beheld him weary with his journey and the night was drawing on. The disciples knew that he designed to tarry there that night and they felt keenly the slight thus put upon their Lord. In anger, they prayed Jesus to call fire down from heaven to consume those who had thus abused him. But Christ rebuked their indignation and zeal for his honor. Yes, sometimes our zeal for the honor of Christ, our indignation for the honor of Christ, sometimes it needs to be rebuked. He told them that he had not come to visit with judgment, but to show mercy. Listen carefully. The disciples were not yet fitted to work outside their own nation. How sad. Many of us are not fitted to work with the very people who are in darkness, who need our help now. The only thing we're concerned about is pointing out their wickedness. Guess what, guys? The Gentiles don't have the gospel. Come on, let's keep going. So what happens? What ultimately happens? I need to check this out, guys. Check out how caring Jesus was for the Samaritans. Check out how caring he was for the Gentiles. But look at his disposition towards the leaders of his own church. Hypocrite. 
whited sepulchers, wolves in sheep's clothing. But when it came to the Gentiles, not a word, no rebuke. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, but the Jews hated so much their perceived enemies, their national enemies. We want to see them suffer. We want to see them exposed. In fact, the cause of Rome rejecting Christ, y'all need to catch this. Remember the seven-week prophecy is about the Jews getting it together, receiving the light so that they can be a light to the world. Well, what happens at the end of the seven-week prophecy? Jesus is crucified, and I want you to watch this. Pilate. Now, is Pilate a Jew? No, Pilate was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And I need you to notice what it said here. Desire of Ages. Pilate had a desire to know the truth. His mind was confused. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are people out there who don't know Jesus, who are confused? Who are wanting truth, but are just confused? Who are looking for solutions to the world's problems, but are just confused? Yes or no? Come on, let me see your response. Yes, we believe that there are people and they're confused. Just like Pilate. Trying to do the right thing, but confused. Trying to understand, but confused. Here's what she says. He eagerly grasped the words of the Savior, and his heart was stirred with a longing to know what it really was and how he could obtain it. What is truth, he inquired. So notice what she says. Pilate is really wanting to know what is truth. He wasn't asking it in a flippant way, what is truth, and then walk away like the movie. No, 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 watch this. She said, but he did not wait for an answer. Why? The tumult outside recalled him to the interests of the hour for the priests were clamorous for immediate action. I need you to catch that, guys. <laughs> his very own people interrupted the possibility of this Gentile understanding what truth was. Going out to the Jews, he declared emphatically, I find in him no fault at all. These words from a heathen judge were a scathing rebuke to the perfidy and falsehood of the rulers of Israel who were accusing the Savior. You guys, you need to catch this. So what happens? Jesus is crucified. By the way, why did Rome crucify Jesus? Why did the Gentiles reject Jesus? They were following. I just need you to catch this. They were following the lead of the very people that were supposed to be the light. Their example emboldened the heathen. Their example emboldened the Romans. And so Jesus dies. The disciples are converted. 
And I want you to watch this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. You know what happened, beloved? Fire was called down from heaven. This time, it was not to go and rebuke people, rebuke the Gentiles. The fire had been given to them to prepare them for their work of taking the gospel to the whole world. Should we be calling fire down on our enemies? Yes, the fire of the Holy Spirit, which will manifest itself in love for those who don't know God. But no, 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 no. Some of us love calling down that fire. We go hunting for fire on the internet. Ah, oh, look, see, there is more evidence that the heathen are heathen. Ha! We should not be trying to show any kind of sympathy to the heathen. No way. And that's why they crucified Jesus, because he didn't fulfill their description of overthrowing their national enemies. And so we know that at the end of the seven-week prophecy, Stephen gets up to speak three and a half years after the crucifixion of Christ. And Stephen speaks a sermon that rebukes the Jews, rebukes the leaders of Israel, I should say. And what happens? They stone him. Why? Because in their mind, they are not the problem. The Romans are. Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 43, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. There goes our 70-week prophecy, beloved. Listen to this. In the theological schools of Judah, by the way, this is when Paul is converted. Listen to what she says. In the theological schools of Judea, the word of God had been set aside for human speculation. It was robbed of its power by the interpretations and traditions of the rabbis. Self-aggrandizement, love of domination, jealous exclusiveness, bigotry, and contemptuous pride were the ruling principles and motives of these teachers the rabbis glorified in their superiority, not only to the people of other nations, but to the masses of their own. With their fierce hatred of the Roman oppressors, they cherished the determination to recover by force of arms their national supremacy. Their whole goal was national supremacy. Nothing else, national supremacy. The followers of Jesus, whose message of peace was so contrary to their schemes of ambition, they hated and put to death in this persecution, Saul was one of the most bitter and relentless actors. So now we've got the picture, beloved, and I need you to understand, it is the same Saul who was once a bitter nationalist, once a bitter hatred of the Romans, now writing this. Romans 2 verse 21, Thou therefore, which teachest another, teach thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that saith a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Watch this. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Wow. The Gentiles aren't the problem. 
The Marxists aren't the problem. The communists aren't the problem. The atheists aren't the problem. The skeptics aren't the problem. They blaspheme God because of the example of those who profess to serve God. The righteousness trap. We're better than you. Stay away, you heathen. Let's go to the 1260. We only got two more prophecies to cover. The 1260. So the 1260-year prophecy is about a power that rises in 538 AD and then falls in 1798 AD. We understand this to represent the little horn power of Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Paul writing in Acts 28 says this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves, men shall arise, speaking perverse things to draw disciples away from them. Notice Paul is not warning about what's going to happen in the world. He's warning about what's going to happen in the church. And so we get to Daniel 7.25, speaking of this little horn power that professed Christianity... And the Bible says, he shall speak great words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. So this little horn power, the papal system during the Dark Ages, claimed to serve God, but what were they doing? They were speaking blasphemous words against him. They were persecuting the saints and they were changing all kinds of laws and changing the word of God. Revelation 13, 5 describes the same beast. There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and its tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. He's making war with the saints, guys. And what is the end result of this 1260 year period? It culminates in something called, come on guys, wait for it, something called the French Revolution. And in prophetic terms, this French Revolution, which occurred in in the late 1700s, was where the rise of atheism really took hold. Atheism, a rejection of God. In fact, during the French Revolution, they burned Bibles. Why were they burning Bibles? I'm just asking a question. Oh, you're right. They were burning Bibles because of something. In other words, let me say it this way. Atheism was only a symptom now, you know, when, when, when a person, you know, gets, you know, like a, a sore on your leg or, you know, you have a headache, the headache is just a symptom. There's a cause for the headache. And so in the health realm, we seek to focus on the cause, not the symptom. 
take care of the cause and the symptom will take care of itself. Beloved, atheism was the symptom. It wasn't the cause. We read, the war against the Bible in France culminated in the revolution. Watch this. The war against the Bible in France culminated in the revolution. The legitimate result of Rome's suppression of the scriptures. <laughs> Watch this. Did you hear that just now? The French Revolution was the legitimate the understandable result of Rome's suppression of the scriptures. It presented with the most striking illustration ever witnessed of the working out of the teachings of the Roman church. The revelator points to the terrible results that were to accrue, especially to France, from the domination of the man of sin. Beloved, listen. Popery began the work which atheism was completing, hurrying France onto ruin. Writers in referring to the horrors of the revolution say that these excesses are to be charged upon the throne and the church in strict justice. They are to be charged upon the church. Popery had poisoned the minds of kings against the Reformation. The genius of Rome inspired the cruelty and oppression which proceeded from the throne. I need you to understand this, guys. The same thing that happened with the Jews in the time of Christ happened during the Dark Ages. The church, claiming to have a zeal for God, what did they do? They persecuted those unlike them. They were hateful to those unlike them. And as a result of that hate... As a result of that righteousness, by we are better than you, thus we hate you, thus we separate ourselves from you. As a result of that, you have atheism. Have you seen the atheist webpage? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they stand for? Yeah, you know what? If Jesus was here right now, <laughs> watch this, guys. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. One of them talks about the French Revolution and atheism. One out of 22. The other 21 chapters... The reason for all the chaos going on in the world in America today, there's a cause for it. And the cause can be found in hypocritical Christianity. Just like it was in the days of Jesus, just like it was in the Dark Ages, and just like we will see it is when it comes to the 2300 day prophecy. Communism has a cause. Communism looked at Christianity, said we tried that, it didn't work. Marxism looked at Christianity, said we tried that, it didn't work. So listen guys, don't get me wrong. I am not advocating for atheism or communism or more. I'm not, I'm not. Someone asked me the other day, are you a Marxist? I was like, really? Seriously. <laughs> 
seriously asking me that question. You're seriously asking me that. You might as well ask if I'm an atheist. The point is this. Jesus' concern is for his church to get it right so that they can witness to those who don't know the truth. Come on, let's go to the 2300-day prophecy. One more prophecy, and then we're done. But we're going to spend some time on this one because you have to see this, guys. So the 2300-day prophecy, Daniel chapter 8, unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is going to begin 1844 to the, to the end of time. That's what the 2300-day prophecy, it brings us to 1844 down to the end of time. So what do we find happening here? Well, very simple. Revelation 13, 11 speaks about this beast coming up out of the earth, which had two horns like a lamb, but spake like a dragon. We understand this to represent hypocritical Christianity, specifically the American nation as a nation claiming to be a Christian nation and yet speaking like a dragon. There's a message that goes forth particularly during this time, and it's called the three angels' messages. First angel's message, fear God and give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Verse 8 says this, there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So my question is, who is Babylon? Who is Babylon? Is Babylon the heathen? What do you think? Heart for the heathen, thumbs up if it's not the heathen. Is Babylon here, does it represent heathen or does it represent somebody else? Look at what she says. There are God-fearing men and women in the fallen churches. If this were not so, we would not be given the message to bear, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. Come out of her, my people. Many of the honest in heart are gasping for a breath of life from heaven. They will recognize the gospel when it is brought to them in the beauty and simplicity with which it is presented in God's word. Babylon, beloved, are the churches. Not the heathen, the churches. Why is God directing this message to the churches? Because he's got honest people in these fallen churches. And he knows that if the churches get their act together, then that is what's going to win over the atheists and the communists and whatever other ists that you want to put in there. The churches represented by Babylon are represented as having fallen from their spiritual state to become a persecuting power against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. To John, this persecuting power is represented as having horns like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. Are you catching this? We are called to speak to apostate Protestantism and yet many of us enjoy pointing the finger to atheism and communism and Marxism as if they are the real enemy no 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 they are not the enemy they exist and continue to grow in numbers because of the wicked 
example of Christians, because of the heartless example of Christians, because of the cold and callous example of Christians. That's why atheists continue to multiply. Let me say it this way. The king of the south is a product of the king of the north. I'm going to let you sit with that. The king of the south, atheism, is a product of the king of the north, hypocritical Christianity. So what do these fallen churches do here in America? Well, we can look at the example by, for example, these people that left these other countries to escape persecution. When they get to America, what do they start doing? They start persecuting other churches other denominations. Protestants were now persecuting Catholics, just like Catholics had persecuted Protestants over in Europe. Hypocrisy. And this is in history for everyone to see. That's why Christianity has such a bad name today. What else did the churches of America do? Oh, they are sanctioned slavery in the name of the Bible, in the name of Jesus. Pretty hypocritical, wouldn't you say? The very ones supposed to demonstrate the love of Christ are marketing people. And praise God, this led to the Civil War. And what I'm about to share with you now, okay, everything up to this point has been a lead up. Because what I'm about to share with you now, I need you... If you haven't shared this, you need to share with someone right now because you need to hear what I'm about to say. You need to see this for yourself. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Praise God for the Civil War. Praise God for the Civil War. Because it led to a few things, one of which you may not have ever known. So I'm going to show you something. I want you to listen to what Ellen White says here. Satan was the first great leader in rebellion. God is punishing the North that they have so long suffered the sin of slavery to exist. For in the sight of heaven, it is a sin of the darkest eye. God is not with the South and he will punish them dreadfully in the end. Satan is the instigator of all rebellion. I saw that you, Brother A, have permitted your political principles to destroy your judgment and your love for the truth. They are eating out true godliness from your heart. You have never looked upon slavery in the right light and your views in this matter have thrown you on the side of the rebellion which was stirred up by Satan and his hosts. Now I just want to pause for a second. She goes on to say, your views of slavery cannot harmonize with the sacred important truth for this time. I just want to pause for a second. She calls what the South did the rebellion. Now that's very interesting. She's literally saying Satan was in charge of this rebellion. In other words, them wanting to secede from, from the Union and create their own new nation. Them wanting to do this was inspired by Satan, this rebellion. Now, I need you to catch this, beloved. So, so can we agree? Just give me a thumbs up if we can agree. This was inspired by Satan. If you can't agree with that, we got some issues.
I'm waiting to see. Okay? So we know that Satan inspired this rebellion. Now notice what it goes on to say. She goes on to say, the same spirit that held the colored people in slavery is not dead, but alive today and ready to spring into action. The same spirit of oppression is still cherished in the minds of many of the white people of the South. This is back in the 1890s, I believe it was, and will reveal itself in cruel deeds, which are the manifestation of their religious zeal. So I want you to check this out, guys. She has now connected religious zeal with racism and slavery. Please, I need you to follow this carefully. She says, some will oppose in every possible way any action which has a tendency to uplift the colored race and teach them to be self-supporting. So watch this now. She says it was a spirit of Satan that led the rebellion. And then she says that spirit is still alive. This is way after the Civil War. She says that spirit of oppression is still alive. Listen. And she says it is connected with religious zeal. Come on. In another place, she says this, slavery will again be revived in the southern states. Notice this, for the spirit of slavery still lives. In 1899, she said this, in the south, listen to this, in the south, the spirit of slavery is not eradicated. It has only been smothered for a short time. Pastor, why are you sharing this? Check this out. I'm going to read to you about a man by the name of Robert Louis Dabney. Please follow this carefully. Louis Dabney was a Confederate soldier who served as chaplain and chief of staff to General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. After the Civil War, Dabney published a defense of Virginia and through her of the South. So Dabney was a staunch Southerner who believed in slavery and who believed that the civil rights war was a religious war. Hold on. Let's read on. It was one of the most influential theological works of its time, serving to bolster the lost cause mythology of the South. The book's argument was a familiar one in the antebellum era, since the enslavement of Africans by Europeans was permitted by the curse of Noah upon Ham. Human enslavement was justified by scripture. In God's providence, human enslavement had actually turned out to be in the best interest of the Negroes, the South, and the nation as a whole. Now, 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 that's just giving you background about who this Dabney person is. Now I want you to listen to what he says here. Check this out. This is from one of his sermons preached in the 1860s or 70s, I believe it is. You'll see the reference at the end. To clergymen intent on establishing the importance of the fast day ritual, the history of biblical Israel demonstrated the value of prayer and fasting. To southern clergymen, God rewarded those nations that came to him in prayer. In accordance with this interpretation of secession as an act consistent with American political values, southern clergymen claimed that the South was the true heir to the American tradition of civil religion. They took these two central expressions of this tradition, the idea of America as God's redeemer nation, and the image of the United States as the new Israel, and reshaped them to apply exclusively to the South. 
The South had become the Redeemer nation and the new Israel. With secession and the outbreak of the Civil War, Southern clergymen boldly proclaimed that the Confederacy had replaced the United States as God's chosen nation. According to Southern ministers, God's chosen nation would advance Republican institution as well as Christianity. The South, instead of the United States, was now ordained to play the leading role in human history. This is Dr. Mitchell, uh, Mitchell Sney, and she is writing about what was happening in the 1860s, 70s. We're gonna see Dabney's quote coming next. So this is not Dabney's quote. This is history pointing back to this idea that the Southern states began to look at the Civil War as a holy war against the liberal union. God was on their side. And the Union were just a bunch of liberal socialists, uh, abolitionists, who were trying to get rid of society as it should be. Y'all are not catching this. I am not talking about 2020 right now, guys. I'm talking about the 1800s. Watch this. Let's keep going. So here's Robert Dabney's sermon entitled The Christian's Best Motive for Patriotism. And here's what he says. If even the voters among these would go together to the polls to uphold the cause of peace, they would turn the scales of every election. You guys, we are talking now about someone supporting the southern states and their desire for slavery. They're talking about going to the polls. And voting as a religious cause. Above all, the guilty churches of all our land should humble themselves before a holy God for our Christian backslidings and our national sins. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, and he quotes the whole Joel. And then he says this, Here then is a prominent duty. If we would save our country, that we shall carry our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven everywhere and make it dominate over every public act. The Christians of this country must sternly claim that wicked or reckless men shall no longer hold the helm of state, that political orthodoxy shall no longer atone for that worst offense against citizenship, a wicked life. And along with rulers would include the directors of the public press as being of the general class of leaders of the people. I need you to catch this. This philosophy began to arise that the southern Christians were the Christian nation while the northern Christians and the northern states were in rebellion against God and were bringing the United States down and the southern Christians had to go get out the vote in the name of Jesus. Dabney continues, 
But this short war will suffice for us to centralize federal power, overthrow the Constitution, fix our high tariffs and plutocratic fiscal system upon the country and secure for ourselves an indefinite tenure of power and riches. These new advisors were aware that a federal executive had no more constitutional or legal right of his own motion to attack a seceded state. Therefore, the conspirators saw that a war must be precipitated without the semblance of law and against the law and the Constitution. In other words, the southern states believe that the northern states had precipitated a war as a conspiracy against the true Christian nation, which was the southern states that supported slavery, and racism. I hope you're catching this. So here are the four points upon which Southern evangelical clergy after the Civil War based this whole theology. Number one, clergy justified slavery as biblical as a biblical sacrament. Number two, the Southern clergy argued that Northern abolitionists were atheists or liberal black backsliders, not black sliders, backsliders, and thus the South could lay claim to being a Christian nation. Number three, Southern evangelical clergy argued that the Confederacy was the New Testament Israel that was exceptional to human history and had been divinely established for such a time as this. And number four, Southern evangelical clergy argued that states' rights, secession, and rebellion against the Union were scripturally sanctioned and required. In the post-Civil War, the United States saw the rise of a group of people called the Redeemers. They were a political coalition in the southern United States during the Reconstruction era that followed the Civil War. Redeemers were the southern wing of the Bourbon Democrats, the conservative pro-business faction in the Democratic Party. They sought to regain the political power and enforce white supremacy. This was their policy of redemption. I want you to see why we are where we are today. So track with me, please. So out of this movement, I'm just going to, out of this movement, listen carefully to this. From the book Neo-Confederacy, A Critical Introduction, listen to these words. These works, talking about Dabney and the Redeemer movement, these works remained outside the mainstream, lost cause apologetics for the Confederacy, until Southern agrarian Richard M. Weaver, Christian Reconstructionist R.J. Rushdoony, and Presbyterian leader C. Greg Singer revived interest in these writings after World War II. I want to focus particularly on Rushdoony, who is known as the father of Christian Reconstructionism. Reconstructionism is a theology and political ideology that advocates the establishment of biblical republics under the rule of God's law or theonomy. In other words, God's law ruling in place of man's law. Does that sound familiar? He wrote The Institutes of Biblical Law, a compilation of five years of his sermons from 1968 to 1972 that became the theological framework that his followers said underscore much of the Christian rights political activism. Rush Dooney believed 
in punishment for breaking biblical laws. Ellen White says, when our nation shall abjure the principles of his government as to enact a Sunday law, Protestantism will in this act join hands with popery. It will be nothing else than giving life to the tyranny which has long been eagerly watching its opportunity to spring again into active despotism. Beloved, this is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That the Southern Christian movement morphed into Christian Reconstructionism. Watch this. Listen to what Christian Reconstructionist Rush Dooney believe. Here's what he said. Or rather, this is what Greg Singer wrote. The Southern Presbyterian Church saw the Civil War as a humanistic revolt against Christianity. Why do we have Adventists today talking about humanism and all the humanistic influences? And beloved, don't get me wrong. I know that humanism is a problem, but watch this. It was the battle cry of the religious right. Humanism was a revolt against the civil war itself was a humanistic revolt against Christianity and the worldview and life view of the scriptures. Thornwell, Dabney, and their contemporaries properly read abolition as a revolt against the biblical concept of society and a revolt against the doctrine of divine sovereignty in human affairs. Beloved, it doesn't get any plainer than this. It started with the Civil War, with the spirit of slavery. And because they could not get over their loss in the Civil War, they morphed it into a political movement. By the mid-1960s, Weaver, Singer, and Rush Dooney had to varying degrees reasserted that the Confederate States fought to preserve Orthodox Christianity in the face of heretical abolitionism and that the Civil War was a theological war over the future direction of the United States. These authors argued that civil rights are anti-Christian and that inequality is God's intended order, drawing on Thornwell, Dabney, and their contemporaries. They did this to provide the historical and religious justification for this position. The role of these men in wider conservative Christian Reconstructionist groups resulted in their views finding a broader audience amongst the religious right and other conservative factions in the United States. Through these overlapping networks, advocates of this cell-style Orthodox Christianity began to converge with supporters of Confederate nationalism. I hope you are catching this, guys. Rush Dooney even argued that the consolidation of the federal government power was something, let me read it, let me just read it. In his interpretation, Rush Dooney argued that the Civil War destroyed the early, the American Republic, which he envisioned as a decentralized Protestant feudal system and an Orthodox Christian nation. Union victory, Rush Dooney maintained, was a defeat for Christian Orthodoxy. Condemning public education and contending that the Civil War was not about slavery, but the consolidation of federal government power, Rush Dooney applauded Dabney's defense of slavery. All right. Let me get to Jerry Falwell. Let me get to Jerry Falwell. Let me get to Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell, leader of what became known the moral majority. 
Let me tell you, let me share with you some things Jerry Falwell said. Jerry Falwell said about segregation being outlawed. He said this, if Chief Justice Warren and his associates had known God's word and had desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made. Falwell boomed from his congregation in Lynchburg. The facilities should be separate. When God has drawn a line of distinction, we should not attempt to cross that line. Jerry Falwell was a staunch segregationist, a racist. He is one of the founders of the moral majority. Paul Rywick, a political activist and commentator, most notably a figure of the new right. Here's what he says. Paul Weirich was trying to start a new political movement in the 70s. And listen carefully, because you got to catch this guy. See, many of us think that the religious right kind of their battle began with the issue of abortion. Listen to what Paul Weirich says. I was trying to get those people interested in those issues and I utterly failed. Wyrick recalls in an interview in the early 1990s. What changed their mind was Jimmy Carter's intervention against the Christian schools trying to deny them tax-exempt status on the basis of so-called de facto segregation. Let me break that down for you. Falwell started his own school because he was against integrating the races. So he started Liberty University. There was also Bob Jones University. Both of these were staunch segregationist Christian schools. Talk about hypocrisy. But when Jimmy Carter became president, actually began under Nixon, a set of laws went into place. They would take away your tax-exempt status if you maintain a segregated school. And this, in 1979, this is what got Jerry Falwell and all the other religious leaders to start the moral majority. Abortion laws had been passed six years earlier and they didn't care about it then. Let me say that again. They did not care about abortion. In fact, it was only Catholics that had been pushing for abortion. But now when they came after their segregated schools and said, if you remain segregated, we're taking away your tax exemption. Then they were like, oh, okay, nah. They knew that they couldn't fight around. We want segregated schools. So guess what the battle cry was? Religious liberty. Religious liberty. We care. The state cannot force the church to do things against their religious liberty became the battle cry. Listen from Wyrick's own words. In 1979, at Wyrick's behest, Farwell founded a group that he called the Moral Majority, along with a vanguard of evangelical icons, including Dr. D. James Kennedy, Pat Robertson, Tim LaHaye. Farwell's organization hoisted the banner of the pro-family movement, declaring war on abortion and homosexuality. But were it not for the federal government's attempt to enable little black boys and black girls to go to school with little white boys and white girls, the Christian rights culture war would likely never have come to be. The religious new right did not start because of a concern about abortion. Former ally Ed Dobson told Randall Balmer in 1990, I sat in the smoke film back room with the moral majority, and I frankly do not remember abortion ever being mentioned as a reason we ought to do something. 
Gary North, Rush Dooney's son-in-law, said this in 1986. The ideas of Reconstructionists have penetrated into Protestant circles that for the most part are unaware of the original source of the theological ideas that are beginning to transform them. See, beloved, many people and even Adventists are mimicking things that they have no idea where it comes from. And it sounds good and it sounds righteous. That's why I call it the righteousness trap because in following the talking points of the beast from the earth and following the talking points of those who are practicing hypocritical Christianity stemming from the civil war I'm almost done I think I got two more slides bear with me more than a decade later, Wyrick recalled the moment well. At a conference in Washington, D.C., sponsored by a religious right organization called the Ethics and Public Center, Wyrick reminded his fellow culture warriors of the fact, quote, let us remember, he said animatedly, that the religious right did not come together in response to the Roe decision. No, Wyrick insisted. What got us going was the attempt on the part of the Internal Revenue Service to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of its racially discriminatory policies. You guys, plain words. Abortion was the chosen horse that united Catholics who were first for abortion and Protestants who didn't join the bandwagon till 1979 because they were against anti-segregation laws. Abortion was the Trojan horse that brought the two together. And Ellen White tells us when the leading churches of the United States unite upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce her decrees and to sustain her institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Abortion was the Trojan horse. Let me say something right here. We don't distance ourselves from anti-abortion because it happened to be the Trojan horse, do we? We don't distance ourselves from abortion talk because, oh, anti-abortion people kill doctors and destroy clinics. We don't say, well, you shouldn't be involved in anti-abortion things because some people have done some bad things. No, we don't do that. And just because abortion was the Trojan horse used to unite Protestants and Catholics together as prophesied doesn't mean that we have to stay away from addressing the issue of abortion. Please get that point. I'm close. I'm not even going to any more slides. I'm going to close right here, guys. Listen. We are Adventists. We know that a time is coming where the government we have now will no longer be the government we have. And some people say, Ellen White says that the principles of this government will be replaced by another. Beloved, that another is not communism. It is not Marxism. That's not what the prophecy says. What the prophecy says is that it will be a theocracy because Satan himself will come as Christ and set himself up as king of America, as king of this earth. When you have God ruling over a nation, it is called a theocracy. If I can say it this way, beloved, Satan is a boxer. He fakes with the left. But plans to knock you out with the right. 
Y'all are not catching me. Satan makes it look, he wants us to worry about the atheists and the commie. And look what they're doing now when the real problem is the right. And all you got to do is read Daniel 11.40 to see that he fakes with the left but knocks out with the right. He's a boxer and many of us are so focused on the left. He is going to knock me. You know that song, I'm going to knock you out? I didn't mean to bring that up. But that's what Satan's saying. I'm going to knock you out. I promise you I'm not singing in the sermon. Stop going for the fake. Yes, we know it's an issue, but the cause of the left is the hypocrisy of the so-called Christian nation. And as Adventists, beloved, we got two people to win. We have the left to win. We have the right to win. So with the right, let's rebuke. Just like Jesus did. You claim to have the word of God. Let's rebuke and then show compassion. With the left, let's show compassion and then speak the truth. They don't have the truth. Two different strategies, guys. It's not that we love one over the other or that we prefer one over the other. No, both are going in the wrong direction. So you got to have a different strategy for both. You got to show compassion to one so that they can hear the truth and you got to speak the truth to the other so that they can start having compassion. Guys, don't fall for this righteousness trap. Righteousness is not how you, oh, see, look, stop going and, and Googling what else, look what else they're doing and look what else they stand for. That's what non-godly or non-Christian or non-truth people, they're confused about a lot of things. They don't have the answers we have and that's okay. So let's share with them the gospel. Let's not hate on them. But those who claim to know Jesus, yeah, we need to be a little bit more, bro, what are you doing? Are you serious? You are serious. You are literally equating helping people with being communistic? Really? You are literally equating helping people, addressing people with, with these issues as being a socialist? Really? No wonder we don't have any influence in the world. No wonder there are atheists that are more moral than some Adventists. Chew on that. And you can call it self-righteousness and all oh, what, but guess what? They're doing the best they know how. And they know that's wrong. They know this is wrong. They know oppression is wrong. But how can it be that we who have the word of God are struggling to figure out if Racism is a real thing, if oppression is a real thing, if all these are real things, but the things that aren't real, man, we're big in that. All right, guys. I love you. And I know some of you are hating me right now. And I know some of you are, are just, but you know what, guys? I'm beginning to realize that this, I'm not Jesus, but I'm beginning to realize why the Jews killed Jesus. Because it's not fun realizing that you are the problem. We are the problem.
our church needs to start calling fire down from heaven. Not to burn the opposition, but to go out and minister in love. I pray that the fire of God will fall on you like it fell on the disciples. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for showing us, Lord, how Satan plans to knock many Adventists out. Thank you for showing us the track from the Civil War, which Ellen White was shown in vision, down to where we are today. The very same talking points. Lord, help us not to echo dragon speak. Help us to realize we have two different groups of people to win. And Lord, may we do this according to your will. Send fire down upon us, Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This message was recorded and produced by Power of the Lamb Ministries. Our mission is to help prepare God's people for the soon coming of Jesus Christ by pointing to the supernatural power of the Lamb of God that gives us the experience of victorious Christian living. For more information on our multimedia resources or inquiries on speaking engagements, please log on to our website at www.powerofthelamb.com. That's www.powerofthelamb.com. Thank you and God bless.